as we turn to Psalm 10. I'm going to turn together to Psalm 10 this evening as we continue our, our study in the Psalms. And we find our place tonight in, in Psalm chapter 10. And the title of tonight's uh, lesson is entitled, How Long, O Lord? How Long, O Lord? And as we pick up beginning in Psalm chapter 10, it's actually a connection that goes back to Psalm chapter 9, which it's been a number of weeks, but last time we were in the Psalms together in our study, we left off at Psalm chapter 9. Psalm chapter 10 is a continuation of the ninth Psalm, and in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, they are actually combined together. Just a reminder to us all this evening, Psalm 9, is a, the theme of it is praise and thanksgiving. Psalm 10, even though it's believed to be the same song, there's a sudden change. And this change is very similar to our lives, isn't it? We can go from a mountain peak moment emotionally and experience and all of a sudden learn some knowledge or some information that, that takes us into a, a place of depression or despondency. In chapter 10, whereas chapter 9 the theme is praise and thanksgiving, in chapter 10 the theme is complaining, pleading with God, and asking God, where are you? So tonight I just want to ask you the question as we begin, have you ever found yourself in a moment to where you say, God, where are you? Or, with the title of tonight's study, How Long, O Lord? In other words, you've been made known of a situation, you've been made known of a trial, You've been made known, or something has been made known to you, an injustice. And so your cry is, how long, O oh Lord? How long will you let this continue? Well, if you've ever found yourself in that situation saying, where are you, God? How long, O oh Lord? I pray and hope that Psalm 10 tonight is a comfort to your soul and gives language to your prayers. Uh, I pray that it's a song that, uh, it, this, a reminder, this is the songbook of Israel. And I pray that, that you will remember that this is a song we can sing. And I want to pick up on that note just for a second, because when we think about music within the church, this is not meant to be about music in the church, but let's just remind ourselves, Psalms is the songbook of Israel. But in the American church, we often just start with ourselves, and we don't get rooted in Scripture. But to come in and to sing a song entitled, How Long, O Lord, or a psalm of lament, many Americans who are carnal or immature or selfish or consumed with themselves will be like, what is this? What kind of church is this? Did you, what, what are they singing here? And so my point is not to say we need to be singing Psalm 10 every Sunday, but I do want to remind the church that not everything is happy-go-lucky. Many of the modern culture of pop music, you could say, in the Christian realm is just about me. And here we have an example of a song from the, the songbook of Israel that's, that's honestly a little astonishing. And the reason I say that is I'm exposing myself to you in my own American mindset. I come to psalms like Psalm 10 and other psalms of lament, and I say, this is a little uncomfortable. We don't talk in this kind of language. I would be honestly a little nervous to talk to God like this, but then I come and Scripture saturates my mind, and it says this gives expression to struggle, to trial, in other words, the Holy Spirit of God, because we believe in the doctrine of inspiration, reminds us that this kind of language is okay. He wants us to know this. It's not to say we have a right to be disrespectful to God. No, please, don't hear that. That's not what I'm saying. 
But it is to say, in the language of Psalms, he knows, Psalm 103, he knows our frame, and he knows we are but dust. And friends, I want you to know, when you have big, deep questions, you can take them to God. God's not threatened by your questions. God's not threatened by anything that we bring to him. As a matter of fact, what we see here in Psalm 10 is, is bring your questions to God. Bring your doubt to God. Bring your lament to God. See, that this is the difference in a biblical expression of, of questioning the Lord and simply becoming bitter against the Lord. In other words, processing, and we'll see more about something in just a minute, but I want to pave the way. Instead of just processing the struggles of life inwardly and allowing that to grow us in separation away from the Lord, here we see in Psalm 10, the psalmist says, no, 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 do not do that. Take it to the Lord. And so by way of introduction, friends, this exposes us on how to pray. So many times we get overwhelmed in our lives we, we, we can't think about anything else. We, we, we're consumed with whatever the trial is or the injustice is. The theme here is injustice. But we get consumed with something that we're made aware of. But the problem is, is we don't pray. And I want to remind all of us that in this passage, we're reminded that God has given us in His grace the discipline of prayer. Prayer is it. Prayer is how we process life. Prayer is when we come before the Lord and give it all before Him with tears, with joy, with sorrow, with gladness. And friends, when our spirit bears witness with the Holy Spirit through the truth of God, we leave in a much better place than when we started. In fact, I want to say this by introduction as well. A faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And for so many people... They have this wrong concept of God, truth, life, that the first struggles that they begin to experience, they completely abandon the faith. They see legitimate injustice, legitimate crimes. They, they survey the landscape or experience it personally. And because of it, the faith that they claim they have dissipates like a fog on a sunny morning. I just want to remind all of us, that the most precious things in life are faith, the disciplines of grace, growing in our relationship with the Lord must be cultivated. Again, the most precious things in life to us require cultivation. And our relationship with God is, is no different. So when we ask these questions, Lord, why don't you deal with the wicked? Lord, where are you in difficult times? When we see in the world today the heinous crime of our land and around the world of abortion, when we see increasing tolerance for idolatry, immorality, the parading of LGBT issues, particularly in this month of June, it's in our face. It's, we're being evangelized. Initially, when it starts, they're shocked. We're all shocked. But here's what happens. They expect that. And then they know that next year you won't be as shocked. And then the next year you won't be as shocked. And then it's just normalized. Abortion, idolatry, immorality. We look around and have loved ones who are dying due to drugs, drug addiction, drug overdoses. We think about human trafficking, abuse of children, 
intentional murder through organ harvesting, children who are abandoned and left to the foster system who need adoption and they're just left. God cares about them, friends. Elder abuse, on and on. I just jotted down just a quick list without even trying in my prep, and I'm not even doing it justice. But as, as Christians who live in 2023, these are issues that we face every single day. And we say, God, how long? How long will this continue? Or we say things like this, Lord, where are you? We know you're the judge of all the earth. We know scripture says, that shall not the judge of all the earth do that which is right. We believe that, God. But what about this? Or maybe it's something that it is, is more personal something that only you would know about. An injustice or a trial that takes place on both a national level and an individual level. What we find here in Psalm 10 is that David is complaining about both. There are things on the national scene and there are things on the personal scene that David is, we could put it like this, in modern vernacular, he's just struggling. Friends, do you ever struggle? I hope so. That, may, that way I know you're human. I struggle. And if we're honest, we all struggle. I'm going to frame our thoughts very quickly around these three points. Number one, David's perplexity. David's perplexity. Number two, David's plea. And then number three, David's praise. Number one, we begin with David's perplexity. And we look there in verse one. We see the alarm of David on display. If this is one continual psalm, as, as we believe it to be, the tone has, has changed it's as if David begins to survey the scene around him. It's believed to be that the background context of this is when David was advised to flee the kingdom due to Absalom, his son. And that he was advised to flee. And many, of course, agree that was, that was bad advice, to abdicate the throne out of fear of his own flesh and blood. Others say, no, it's not this, and there's all these different theories. But those are not really the main points for us tonight. It's just simply this is an event in David's life. And the first thing we see about David's perplexity is in verse 1. It seems as if God is silent or absent. God's inactivity, you could say. Notice verse 1. Why do you, O Lord, why do you stand afar off? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Do you remember David as a boy coming before Saul? Do you remember that confidence he had? There was something beautiful in just his raw, sincere, unjaded. Is there any God like our God? Are we going to listen to the, the heathen blaspheme our God? Is there not a cause? We get so many great phrases from David. There is a God in heaven. Is there not a cause? Are we going to listen to the heathen blaspheme him? There's a boldness that's there. And now we see how far David has fallen. I'm not mocking him, by the way, but I do want to point out the, the contrast. Of course, David is a much, much older man here. He, he has lived a lot of life. He's experienced a lot of betrayal, but he's also experienced much faithfulness from God. But here we see him in a vulnerable moment. In fact, when Saul asked him, who are you, young man? Here, here take my armor. And David's like, that, that ain't working. This isn't, this isn't working. My God was with me when I killed the lion and the bear, and he'll be with me now. And he was. But here, David does not feel that presence and that confidence. Here we see him greatly perplexed at God's 
inactivity? Why do you stand afar off? Or you could say aloof, Yahweh. Why do you hide in times of trouble? There's two questions here. Why do you remove yourself and why do you hide yourself? That's quite an accusation, but friends, it's true. We feel this sometimes. They're like, God, where are you? And it seems as if you're hiding. And if you loved me, you would be here. Lord, I'm crying out to you as your child. Don't you love me? I'm your adopted child. So where are you? So David asks, why are you hiding when I need you most? Why are you hiding in a time of tribulation? In fact, the Hebrew text renders it, why do you muffle your eyes and ears? It's as if, God, you've, you've abandoned me, intentionally not seeing and not hearing. So we're going to take note of that. The very thing David's accusing God of, at the end of the psalm, he gives praise to him for, his omnipresence, his omniscience. And so we continue. There's a theme, in fact, in the scriptures, just to make a point here, that many of God's people, so they know, know that David is not alone, have struggled with the seeming absence of God. For example, Psalm 55.1, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Friends, I want you to know this morning, God is not the parent at the pool, and your child is swimming, and they want you to see, you know, I'm jumping. I want you to see this trick, and the parent's distracted with, with other things. You're not important, or some type of thing like that. The parent, God's not on his phone while you're struggling in a corner. God has not abandoned you. Lamentations 3.56. We see the, the Bible says, You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my sighing, from my cry for help. Job 23.9, When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. Job says, when he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. Job certainly felt what David is, is feeling here, alarmed and discouraged. But friends, there's a theme here with God's people. Job, the psalmist, Jeremiah, limitations, is they did not stop praying. And I will tell you, in your struggle and your questioning, do not stop seeking the face of the Lord. The second thing David has a problem with, or David's problem, David's perplexity, is that God seems indifferent. And I want us to walk through verses 2 through 6. As he begins to give description, let's moving from his questioning of God to what he sees. So what is, what is causing David to ask these questions? What is the problem? I think we're going to get a clearer picture here. The first thing he begins to describe in verses 2 through 6 is the wicked in their prideful heart. God seems to be indifferent to this. For example, beginning of verse 2, the wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots, O God, which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. This is Romans 3 language, by the way, in the comprehensive language that Paul uses when he says, no man seeks after God, no man desires God, right? This is what David is saying. The wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. His ways are always prospering. And so this is the problem with David. David's like, wait a second. This is not the Psalm 1 man. Lord, I thought the godly prosper spiritually. But why is it when I look around and survey, it seems as if those who are not only wicked, but boldly wicked, are wealthy too. They prosper. They are the influences of our age. Their lives look glamorous. 
They're the movie stars who are greatly immoral that our culture idolizes and has their favorite stars and celebrities. But friends, these, these people don't seek the Lord. And they're rich. They live the life or want us to think they live the life that we all should have as well. So we see that God is in none of their thoughts. And he says, your ways are all, his ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. Friends, this is the first description that David gives. This is why he's struggling. These, these enemies have a prideful heart. And their pride keep them from acknowledging God. The fool, if you remember, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So any admittance of guilt to this prideful individual, these that do not seek the Lord, would be a blow. They, they, they cannot overcome their humanism, their self-centeredness, their self-sufficiency. They delight in their lawlessness. And here's the thing, they, they think they're getting away with it. Their gods are idols. The love of money. Think about it. every TV show. Just here, I'm not even, don't think too, too deeply about this. But I would tell you, some, if, whoever keeps track of these things, keep whoever the top ten Netflix, Prime, YouTube TV, whatever TV shows, I will tell you one thing. There's probably the common denominator is that greed is driving the thing. Greed. Yeah, there's all these other sins, but it's the, it's the love of money at all costs. Drug lords, prostitution, uh, crime, the cartels. What, what I mean is, is people who exploit other people for gain, for money, for bloodlust. And our society consumes this stuff. Friends, these things are real. They have consequences. And we're made to believe that these people are those who have the amazing life. Well, those with a biblical worldview know that's not the case. And yet, we struggle. We do. Sometimes life gets hard. We say, wait a second, God. This doesn't make sense. I love what David says here in verse 2. He says, let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Well, friends, that is a biblical prayer. This is the old-fashioned principle of reap, so, uh, reaping what you have sown. And friends, this is a legitimate prayer to pray. In fact, this is what happens to them. They do reap what they sow. I was reading recently in ancient history about a man who invented a, a bronze cow. He, he knew his king enjoyed torture, torturing his enemies. And so he thought he could please the king by presenting his new invention to the king. And so he, he made this bronze cow with a, a hatch on the top by which you would put the, the prisoner in. The fire would be kindled underneath this bronze cow. Inside, just leading out to the mouth of this bronze cow, was like this trumpet or this ornate, looks like a French horn. And so as the man would literally be fried to death on the inside, as the fire raged and the man's burning on the inside, his cries were designed to come out of the, the cow's mouth as a worshipful moan. It, it was designed to make it seem as if the, the brazen cow is speaking to the people. This was his masterpiece. And he goes to the king and said, I present this as a gift to you. And the king said, good, you'll be the first one that goes, that goes inside it. That's an example. But there are biblical examples. Haman tried to hang Mordecai on the gallows, and he ended up being hung upon it within God's direction and providence. In the book of Daniel, we see that the presidents tried to kill Daniel in another one of their schemes. 
And yet, they were the ones eventually, after Daniel was thrown into the lion's den and yet preserved, they were the ones, because the king loved Daniel, Daniel was caught on a technicality. When the king saw that God preserved Daniel's life, he ordered all those presidents to be thrown into the lions, and they were slain, they were killed. And so there's a principle here that David pleads out for, and we see exhibited in history and also in the scriptures where people reap what they sow. Verse 7 describes another aspect of his concern. They have a perverse mouth. Notice what verse 7 says. Their mouths are full of cursing and deceit and oppression. And under their tongues, his tongue is trouble and iniquity. They have a filthy mouth, a blasphemous mouth. Verses 8 through 10 describes their theft, their plundering hands. He sits in the lurking places of the villages, in the secret places. He murders the innocent. Think about it. Who are most crimes committed against? It's not the strong. It's not those who can defend themselves. Studies show this. Stats show this. The vast amount of crimes are committed against people who are perceived to not be a threat back. Women, children, those who are drunk, those who do not have their faculties, they are slain. He lies in wait. Notice this description of like a lion seeking whom he may devour. They lie in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor, and when he draws him into his net, so he crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. And David sees this. He witnesses it. And friends, we witness it too, don't we? Our hearts cry out for justice as we see the great sins of our land, as we experience them personally. We think about physical assault, abuse, all of those types of things that, that affect those that we know and love. My goal is not to just rap, give stats, but we all know these things are true. We know people who've been hurt, and we say, Lord, why them? Why this? What's going on? One last thing David points out as well is their profane mind. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. This is the way the wicked think. There is no God, so why are we talking about him? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Then why are we talking about him? But notice what he says, verse 11. Well, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. By the way, in verse 4, notice the wicked does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. He doesn't believe he exists. But in verse 11, he says in his heart, well, God has forgotten. This is funny, isn't it? It's sad. The wicked denounces God. Romans 1 language says, no, the witness of God is in us. It's in our conscience. It's in our being. But we squelch that. And this is an inside look of the wicked's mind. They, they, they squelch the light that they have, and yet they talk about it. They take his name in vain. They blaspheme him. OMGs rolling off the tongue all day long, taking his name in vain in many other things. Friends, I just want to remind all of us that pride is the, if you want to categorize sin, the root sin underneath every other sin. Imagine there's a root, the blooms may be different on the, the plant, the, the blooms may be different on the flower, but at the root of all of sin is pride. Pride. Proverbs 16.5, everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. David knows this. David sees this. David experiences this.
And at times, David has been the cause of this. This is David's perplexity. Secondly, we see David's plea, and this really, again, points us. There's a spiritual discipline being highlighted here. David is singing and pouring out his heart unto the Lord. Augustine said that when we sing, we, we pray twice. This is the discipline of prayer turned into song. And so David's plea is, oh God, remember the weak. Remember the helpless. How? Well, notice in verses 12 and 13, he says, Remember the weak, O God, but in their affliction. Arise, O Lord. So this is, by the way, if you're not following me, this is language for prayer. I struggle to pray. I confessed to my wife recently that the Lord had been working in my heart and in just needing to turn some corners and intercessory prayer and faithfulness in prayer and growing in this. I'm not ashamed to say that. And what I love is that as you study the Bible and read the Bible, it's not complicated. Here is language for prayer. Right here. How do I pray for those who are going through a trial? Lord, arise. Remember the weak in their affliction. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. Arise, O Lord. Do not forget the humble. Secondly, Lord, remember the weak in their vexation and their strife. He says, verse 14, but you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief. You observe it to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Again, something that David knows very well. As we've been emphasizing, I won't go down this path too long because we've been talking about it on Sunday mornings. God cares for the orphan, stranger, and widow. The least of these. Jesus makes clear to his disciples, if anyone offends one of these little ones, spiritually, physically, spiritually in discipleship, leads them astray with a false gospel or false doctrine, hurts them physically, you name it, it would be better that a millstone be put around their neck than for them to do that. And so David cries out and says, Lord, remember the helpless. Remember that they commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. And church, I want us to know, as we do look around the survey, as we talk about these crimes, that list I gave earlier, listen, God has not forgotten. And God will avenge. Righteousness and judgment and vengeance belongs to the Lord. That is not to say we don't use our voice, and it does not mean to say that we don't lift up our voice and lift up our efforts and, and get out into the highways and hedges. It doesn't remove anything from us. But there's a comfort to know that God will avenge because he is the helper of the fatherless. The wicked need to wake up before it's too late. So David's plea is, oh God, remember the weak. And then we see in verse 15, he says, God, reject the wicked. Reject the wicked, oh God. Here's what he says. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you Find none. Specifically, in verse 15, he asked them to do two things, break them and judge them. And friend, I would add within our full New Testament gospel context and pray that God saves them. Saves them. There's no shame in praying these psalms of lament. This is scripture just as much as John 3.16 is. I want to make sure you understand that. 
But right now, we are also under the age of grace, and God can save anyone. And I want to remind you that such was a prayer being made against Saul of Tarsus. Judge him, O God. Break him, O God. How long, O God? Imagine, just put in Saul of Tarsus in this prayer. And imagine it's the early church of Jerusalem praying against him. And friends, that's why we need to say and add, save them. To break them, judge them, save them. Humble them. And friends, I'm going to say, tell you tonight, if you cannot pray that, I doubt your salvation. If you cannot pray, oh God, save the wicked, save the abuser, save those who are vile, then friend, you don't understand grace. And you don't understand your need for salvation. And you don't understand God's holiness. And you don't understand how we all need salvation. Biblical prayers. But friends, may the Lord find us praying for the wicked. Because God does save terrorists. God does save murderers. God does save rapists. God does save abusers. It doesn't lessen their crime. It doesn't less take away the pain. It doesn't mean everything they've done is it, it, all lives are fixed. No, not on, this, not on this earth. But friends, God in his own way will lead and guide and give grace to all involved. Deep waters. I understand that. Number one, David's perplexity. Number two, David's plea. And then rightly, we see the Holy Spirit move David's heart to praise. And friends, I will tell you, when we're praying as we ought, when we're filled, when we come to the Lord with tension and anxiety and emotions and weights and things upon our shoulders, I want to remind us of the old song, take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. I think too many of us are taking our burden to the Lord And we're walking away just as heavy as when we came. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. Leave it there. Leave it there. And I believe that's what David does. Verse 16, we see that David begins to praise God. How? For what? Well, notice he begins to praise God for his majesty. And I want to just kind of remind us, how do we do this? David's pouring out his heart before the Lord. It involves his own son, we believe. This is not pie-in-the-sky stuff. If we're tempted to say, David just doesn't quite know what he's talking about. Listen, we'll live long lives, but very few of us will have a son that throws us off the throne and chases us to the, wanting to take our life. And uh, if you've ever experienced that, then I weep with you and I will pray with you. But let's just remind ourselves, this, this is a deep, deep trial where David is being pursued. So we see David's praise So what he does is he begins to move his eyes off of the problems and he realizes who he's he's praying to. He fixes his eyes on his king. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord is in the heavens. The Lord reigns. His throne is over all. And so that's what David looks to. He, He gets his eyes off of this throne and he focuses on that throne. And so he begins to praise God For what? For his majesty, the Lord, verse 16, the Lord, Yahweh, is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his his hand. David reminds himself that God reigns forever and that God will deal with his enemies. The second thing we see here is that David begins to praise God for his mercy. Verse 17, that he does hear where he's asking, oh God, do you 
Do you hear the oppressed? Do you hear the afflicted? It's as if God has reminded him, touched him, spoken to him. It says, oh yes, David, I've heard you many times. How many times, David, have you been in a cave running from Saul before you even became king? And I provided for you. I protected you. It's as if David is rehearsing the goodness of God. And friends, we need to rehearse the blessedness of God in our lives. Keep a journal. Write down when God, not, not, I'm not just talking about Psalm 103 language, daily, regularly loads us with benefits. But friends, remind us that it's, it's in the little things. A text of encouragement, a card, a friend who uh, just you run into in a happenstance, or just a moment with your, your child where the Lord speaks to you through them in a, I don't know, just all kinds of things we could point out, special moments. We hear the testimony of a saint, an older saint in God, and we hear their story of what they've been through and how God's been faithful to them. Rehearse the goodness of God, because make no mistake about it, God is good. So we saw in our uh, call to worship Sunday morning, the Lord is good for the Lord is, or is good. So praise God for his mercy and that he does hear the oppressed. Verse 17, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart and you will cause their ear to hear. And then in the same way that he mentions earlier that God is the father of the fatherless, of those who are the poor, he returns to this theme again, to those who would, verse 9 language, catch the poor when he draws them in his net. He returns to this language that God will avenge them. Verse 18, he says, Do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. There is no shame in asking the Lord to, to, to take evil and iniquity out. There is no shame in, in saying, Lord, deal with this heinous crime or, or deal with those, bring them to justice. Notice how he praises how God has come to the aid of the little ones, the orphans, those who have been abandoned. Well, we walked through a very big psalm, a large chunk of meat very quickly, but I want to give some concluding thoughts of application that I hope will help us. The first one is the saints persevere in prayer. It, it, is not, it is not drudgery. When it does feel like drudgery or starch in drudgery, drudgery, it will end in delight. Do not abandon the place of prayer. Prayer is God's means of grace that, that keeps us where we're supposed to be. The reason many of us are bitter, struggle so much, is we tell our problems to everyone else but the Lord. We, we pour it out to our husband. We pour it out to our wife. And friends, there comes a point where they just can't handle it. Charity Lamb is not able to handle all my burdens. And God never designed her to be. And for those of you who have a spouse, God did not design your husband or your wife to be him. No one can take the place of God in the means of prayer for you. But I'm afraid, I, I know common sense, I know common, I, I know our, our common practices. Years in pastoral ministry reveal this. 
We forget to pray. And I just want to encourage our church, take your burden to the Lord. Leave it there. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you can never talk about your problems. I'm not saying you can't ever share it with your spouse. I'm just saying don't neglect the place of prayer. I think if we take these burdens and requests to prayer, that what we actually do give to our friends and those that we love, they're much more easy are able to handle it because we've given the bulk of it to the Lord, and he's the only one who could ultimately change most of what we're burdened about. Secondly, I think we need to understand that in God's providence, the wheels of justice turn slowly. The wheels of justice turn slowly, but that does not mean that justice will not be achieved. The wheels of justice turn slowly. In fact, in Romans 1 language, we see the other side of it, that is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Again, to go back to Saul, it was the, the wheels of justice turn slowly against Saul. The church, no doubt, said, God, how long? I have no doubt that the early church prayed Psalm 10. This is a part of their songbook, using this language to, to cry out to the Lord in the midst of persecution. But it's also the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Our God is glorified in the salvation of the lost in the same way he was glorified when he saved us who were lost. We are, thirdly, a doubting people. We know God's truth. We read God's truth. We know who he is and what he says he is, but we're prone to doubt. And I I am not one of those pastors that glorifies doubt. There are people who do. I, I do not. Doubt is sin. To continue in a state of doubt, let's not glorify it. It's called faithlessness. But we recognize that it happens. So I'm not trying to beat you in the head tonight and say, if you struggle with doubt, you know, I'm just condemning you. No, no, no. But I will love you enough to say, that's sin. So here's my, our, our next point. We are a doubting people. So what do we do with them? You take them to the Lord. You bring them to the Lord. You bring your doubts to the truth and you bring your t- truth to the doubts. And God's word will inform and give light and give insight. And we will find that our fallen thinking gets corrected and adjusted. And we grow in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. So, friend, tonight, if you are doubting, there are people who glorify this. I do not. There are those who say to, to glorify doubting is one step closer to atheism. And we're giving space and cognizance to that and saying, well, it's okay that you're struggling with your doubts. It's not okay. Because God's given us truth. Like, the truth will set you free. So I want to encourage you, church, if you are doubting with anything, take your burden to the Lord. Go to godly friends who will pray with you. Bring your struggles and your doubts to the truth and let the truth shine on your doubts and they will be removed. See what the Lord will do. And then lastly, church, I pray that Grace Church will continue to grow in who we are. And what we are, and if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Micah 6, 8 as our closing thought. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And may we continue to be a voice of not only the gospel, but may we be those who recognize the sins of our age and are not silent. I'm sorry, but you will not make us bow. We will not bow. I'm sorry, I'm going to say that again. We will not bow to the sins of this age. Do, do I have the right group here tonight? We, we will not bow to what, what society tells us we must bow to, but in love, 
We will exhort them to bow to King Jesus. This language is blunt, it's forceful, but it's not on my behalf. It is on behalf of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And friends, to, to every cultural sin that we can think of, we love them enough to say, no, we will not bow, and we're not afraid of the consequences. And as I told you a few weeks ago, that's the problem in the American church today. We have no voice. The problem with the American church, I don't know if I'm getting off track here. Y'all are looking at me funny, but I'm just going to say it. The problem with the American church is we know our role. We, we know our, the Tucker Carlson's of the world are more passionate in their views than a preacher is in the pulpit on the truth. That's how bad the state of America is today. You're, whoever, you name it, a media personality is more, and you know why people are drawn to them? Because they're men of conviction and whatever they believe in. But friends, we have the truth. We cannot be outdone when we say, no, 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 we will not bow. Abortion will never be okay. The, the sins of our age will never be okay. Theft, a, a, a robbery, murder, you name it. And we're, we're not ever going to say that it is. Throw us in jail. But you've got to mean that. And here's the problem. Many Christians don't. We rah, rah, rah right here in the auditorium. But we go to work, and you know what we do? Just keep our mouth shut. And that's why we're lukewarm in America today. And I want to close with Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Grace Church, may we continue to be the embodiment of being led by God's Spirit, filled with His grace, as experientially as we experience it every single day, desiring to share the gospel with other people and so that God may be greatly glorified as we serve him. And so I close tonight with simply this, no prayer, but simply this, go serve your king. The Lord bless you and keep you.